pray that's what you would give us. Uh, help Pastor Jack as he speaks now. Uh, fill him with your Holy Spirit and give him every word that you want to say. We pray uh, for your blessings, for these prayer requests uh, that were lifted up, uh, for the family that is uh, grieving at the loss of a, a loved one, and uh, for health challenges and other challenges that there are. Lord, you know every need. We pray that uh, you would work in our lives in a powerful way if we have faith in you. Uh, Lord, we do believe. Uh, we pray that you would uh, help our unbelief and increase our faith. We ask that you be pleased with what we say and do by your power and for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, First Timothy chapter 3, and what we'll do is we'll read the first verse and the part of verse 2 that we made it to when we started this study a couple weeks ago. And the title of this particular chapter of our study in becoming a first century church is on the leadership of the first century church. So First Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 1. The Word of God says, This is a true saying, If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop, then, must be blameless, the husband of one wife. And that's as far as we made it last time. We filled up a whole Bible study just launching from those particular verses. So what I'll do is I'll walk back through the uh, the handout quickly and see if there are blanks there and tell you what we put in last time. We said from verse number 1, a man is allowed to desire to be a bishop. Verse 1 says that if a man desire... And then the next blank is this verse teaches there is a office of a bishop. A office of a bishop. The word is overseer here. And we talked about how in the New Testament there's the word bishop, which means overseer. There's the word pastor, which means shepherd. And there's the word elder, which means an older person, but also meaning by implication many times a specific position, as in the Jewish tribes, the elders are what they would call the councilmen who would meet together, who would make the position, who would make the decisions. So if you said in those days that someone was an elder, it didn't just mean that they were older. It meant that they were not a young person. They were not, a, it wasn't that they were someone who was not of age yet. They were of full age and they also had that position that went with the official title of elder. So this verse teaches there's such a thing as an office of a bishop. And the third one there under verse 1 is this office is a good work. It's a good work. Desiring to be a pastor, giving your life to that, giving part of your life to that, the Bible says it's a good work. It's a good thing. Verse number 2, this verse uses the term must be to indicate that there are certain qualifications that must be met. And that's what we're studying here is the qualifications of someone who's going to be in that position of bishop, pastor, elder, overseer of the church. The beginning of that verse, it says we have there blameless, married, and masculine. It says the husband of one wife, indicating that it should be a man that fills that position. We looked at other supporting verses there also. The word blameless means that there's not something that a reasonable person could look and say, you've done something so wrong, you've got a flaw that is so wrong, that you should not be able to do this position. The next one, Paul's letters are scripture. Paul's letters are scripture. I think it's 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. We read that Sunday morning also. And then underneath that, there are no examples of women pastors or deacons in the New Testament. Um, we added in scriptures there that uh, you could I could get to you later if, if you weren't here and you wanted to add those in. Okay, so I think that we made it about as far as I was wanting to to continue on our subject here. 
So, Jason, would you look at 1 Peter chapter 5 and read us a verse from there in just one moment? Um, so we read verse number 2, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. This here would give the expectation that someone who is going to be a bishop or an overseer would be married. Now, as I said before, I'm going to get, I hope to get to here in a couple of weeks, the questions that people have often are, well, bishop, elder, overseer, pastor, are those different positions or are they the same one? I believe they are different terms referring to the same office, and I think we'll show that scripturally. So here when it says a bishop, it must be the husband of one wife, that would be the expectation, is that a church leader would be married. And can you read First Peter 5, 1? The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Okay, so the Apostle Paul said that he also was an elder. But we know from the scriptures that he was single and that he was not married. So maybe the Apostle Paul illustrates here that there could be exceptions to that or exceptions for a time. Um, I, I don't really know. As I said, if I was on a pulpit committee and was looking for someone to fulfill that role, I would look for someone who met these qualifications and I would think, let's get someone who's married. That's what the text said. I think Charles Spurgeon was 17 years old when they made him the main preacher of the London, it was at London Baptist Tabernacle. I think that's what it was called. Um, and then he got married after that and continued on. So at any rate, the Apostle Paul was certainly a unique person as well. He was a church planner. He was a missionary. He was an apostle, which is not really an office we think that carries forward because there were qualifications such as seeing Christ and that goes along with those 12 disciples. So he was a, a missionary, church planner, apostle, elder, he said that he fulfilled all those roles. I just think it's interesting that the Apostle Paul also said that he was an elder. Um, if you're there in First Timothy, First Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 1, it's interesting that here in chapter 3, the Bible says if you're going to be an overseer of the church, you should be married. In First Timothy 4 and verse number 1, he then says this, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils wow doctrines of devils so it's teachings that come from demons from fallen angels what kind of things would they teach you should worship the devil you should do drugs no look what it says verse 2 speaking lies and hypocrisy having their conscience seared with a hot iron forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So, if we think doctrines of devils, as I said, we might picture some evil thing they would try to get us to do. But in this context, in this passage, the doctrines of the devil is not to call good what God calls bad, but is to restrict what God has said is good. It says abstaining from meats, which we still see some that want to talk about Old Testament law and we shouldn't eat pork and we shouldn't do these things. When God said in the New Testament, those restrictions are lifted. He's given us meat to enjoy. But the first one it says is forbidding to marry. 
Now, if you're going to be a priest in the Catholic Church, which again, we talked about, you could call a church leader an elder, an overseer, a bishop, a pastor, all those are biblical terms. Uh, We said that Baptists historically like the term pastor because it separated from priest and from terms that were being used in other Protestant type churches that had more of a high church formality type of feel. And Baptists like the term pastor because it's just shepherd and under shepherd. And it seems to be a little more informal. It does appear in the text of the Bible once that word pastor Um, I think it was Ephesians 4 when it says he gave some teachers, apostles. It says he gave some pastors. But at any rate, all of those terms, I think, can be biblical. But I don't think that priest or father are biblical. Jesus said specifically in the context of a spiritual leader, call no man thy father, but thy father which is in heaven. It's obviously not wrong to look at your physical father and acknowledge that as so. And uh, Paul even said Timothy was his son in the faith. But Jesus said, don't look and call father a spiritual leader. Remember that God is your father, which is in heaven. And I also do not think that priest would be a biblical term for a church leader. They were called priests in the Old Testament. But when Jesus died, the literal physical veil of the temple, which was a garment that separated the outside part of the temple from the Holy of Holies where the animal sacrifices would be made was ripped in half miraculously with no one touching it. God in heaven struck that part of the temple, ripped the veil in twain because it was signifying that now there's such a thing as the priesthood of all believers. We all have access to God. Hebrews says, "...come boldly therefore to the throne of grace." that we may obtain mercy and find help in our time of need. So I don't have to go confess my sins to a man to get forgiveness. I can go directly to God. It does say confess your faults one to another, that you may be healed in terms of accountability and having people pray for us. But we know that there, the scripture says there is one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. I don't have to go to someone as a spiritual father and say, make a sacrifice for my sin. Go to God on my behalf. Forgive my sins. We have the priesthood of each individual believer. We can go to God for ourselves. But at any rate, in the Catholic Church, you can't be a church priest and be married. When God says here in the text, a bishop should be the husband of one wife. It's it's actually very backward. So I kind of finished before I got to the last little part of my notes on that phrase, husband of one wife, we spent a lot of time there. But there's one more small thing which actually carries with it something that is controversial in a lot of circles. So I'll just bring it up. I'll give you a few thoughts and not spend much time on it. It says a bishop must be the husband of one wife. That's what the text says. What the literal meaning is, I've heard many people say the best meaning of husband of one wife would be a one-woman man. So it would indicate not only that the man is married, but that he is faithful to his wife. A husband of one wife would automatically eliminate anyone who is living in polygamy, a man who has many different wives. Again, the term simply means married, married to one woman. Um, And as I said before, they let Spurgeon preach as the leader before he was married. The Apostle Paul preached as he traveled, but that specific position of bishop overseer in the church, it's right there in the qualifications. It says the husband of one wife, so that no doubt should be the normal expectation. Um, I think I forgot to say also it says in a little bit... um, 
that you rule well your own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. So obviously there could be some room here if there was a couple that was unable to have children that wanted to. It wouldn't mean that he would be disqualified, just that it would be the normal expectation that marriage and children would follow as a normal expectation for a leader in the church because they're good things from God. Um, Brother Cox told a story one time, the evangelist who used to come when we were younger, and he said there was a, a man who I think his dad had pastored the church, or they knew him. They want they The older man left. They wanted him to be the pastor, and he got out of Bible college. He wasn't married, and the pastor at his college told him, it says the husband of one wife, you need to get married before you're a pastor. So they basically held the church down for two years, and he ran off and went around till he found someone to get married to. And then he came back, and he was the overseer. So as I said, some people have worked a little bit differently. I remember hearing that in like the 1940s or 50s in Texas, there were these Bible college and then there were small little bitty churches that you would drive out uh, of the city to go to and they literally had no one. So they would go to the young single guys and say, come preach for us on Sunday morning and be our pastor. And they did that for a time. And those men eventually got married and went forward. I'm spending a lot of time on the phrase husband of one wife, but there's so many things that people bring up. And so it, it means that you would be married, but that you would be not unfaithful because remember again, it says blameless. That goes along with what that verse would say. Also, if you were unfaithful to your wife, you would clearly not be blameless and qualified to be a pastor. So the part that's controversial is that many people believe that this phrase, the husband of one wife, they believe that it unequivocally means that any divorce at any time in a man's past would disqualify him from being a pastor. Whether that's 100% true or not, I'm not completely convinced. If this, Because the passage says the husband of one wife. It doesn't mention the word divorce. So what it says is that you'd be married and that you'd be married to one wife. Now, that I don't think that means that anything goes for someone so long as they're married at the moment. But if you took that literal meaning, the husband of one wife, and took that to mean throughout your entire life, you were only ever married to, to one woman, then that would disqualify a widower or a widower whose wife has passed on and then gets remarried. And even the most literal would mean if your wife passed away, you would have to resign at that moment because, and you could never do it again. Um, so what, what I'm, I'm not saying uh, I think divorce is okay. I'm just saying it's not really mentioned in the text, the literal straightforward meaning is the husband of one wife. Let me see what else I have here. Again, Paul certainly had a role, though it seems he never married, as a church planner, missionary, preacher, and apostle. Um, the, if you took the literal meaning of it, like I said, well, it means you can only be married one time and you have to be married at that moment. That would also disqualify someone who was divorced before they were saved, which to my mind, I would struggle somewhat with that because the Apostle Paul was literally a murderer and people commit all kinds of sins before they are saved. And when we come to God, there's forgiveness, there's a new start. Um, I thought there was a very good balanced article on gotquestions.com on this topic that was well balanced, that threw out some thoughts. If anyone wanted to look at that, again, I'm not trying to be super dogmatic. I'm just trying to tell you what it says, kind of what I think and what a lot of people have to say about it. Um, and they pointed out, I thought, very well made the point that a saved person who goes through an unscriptural divorce probably is not blameless, as it says in verse number one, and certainly isn't a good testimony. 
Um, some of you in this room may not have heard of, but I'm sure that several of you have heard of the name Peter Ruckman. Uh, he pastored a church in Florida and became famous talking about the King James Version. And to this day, people will use the phrase Ruckmanite because he taught things like, well, there's no Greek that is preserved at all, but the KJV is perfect. So the Word of God had passed away, and then when the King James was given, God re-gave it, inspired it, made it perfect, and it corrects the Greek. He even things like saying abortion was okay, and just it got a very negative connotation because he taught a lot of things that were not accurate about the Word of God, and even Bible translations in his zeal to me was very far out of bounds. So most all independent Baptists, even among us type of people, if you say Ruckman, you mean Ruckmanite, it carries a negative connotation. He was, by the time he was done pastoring his church on his third wife, and it was basically from what people said and what he said was, well, she no longer wanted to be, and the Bible says let him depart, and so I just trade out and get a new one and keep going, and it doesn't really matter. And that type of attitude towards marriage is really not biblical and certainly not a good testimony. Um, there's even a pastor that was somewhat in the local area that it was the same type of situation that might have even been a charge of infidelity that was just kind of, oh, well, I'm the pastor, and oh, well, we just divorced and switched to marry someone else who is in the church, and I'll just keep going. Someone who treats it that way is not being blameless, as the text says. And God has mercy, God has grace, everybody has a past, there's all kinds of things that's going on. Um, all that I'm looking at is someone who is leading in the church that mistreats marriage that way is certainly being a very bad testimony to Jesus Christ. And if there's there's mentions in the text about ruling your own house well, keeping your children in subjection, being the husband of one wife, and then it specifically says, how can you be a good leader in the church if basically your own home is not being taken care of? So someone who does go through that type of thing should probably at least step back, be a part of a church, go forward, and who knows in what role God would use them in the future, but probably shouldn't continue on in that role of leading would be my thought. Um, my dad had a pastor friend that was also in the Metroplex that when he was young and in the ministry, his wife left him, was unfaithful, and the man kept going as pastor, eventually got remarried. And I don't, I'm telling you, I don't know what to think of that. I, I wouldn't probably like that. But the man was a good friend to my dad. His church gave untold number of money to missions and saw people saved. I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm just saying people look at this text and then they come up with somewhat of different opinions. And I think perhaps we could give a little bit of grace for every specific situation. And uh, I think that's basically all that I have to say about that, that marriage should not be disrespected and trampled in, in a way that we could not look and say the pastor is blameless. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't specifically in that verse bring up the issue of divorce. It says the husband of one wife is simply what it says straightforward. And as I said, it's controversial and people will come up with their different opinions and seek the Lord as they all should do. And maybe it's something we don't have to have 100% figured out here tonight. So I just do my best to give you that's what the text says and kind of a, what a lot of different people say. And everyone has to follow God and come to the conclusion that God would bring them to, to the best of their ability. Okay, I am ready to move off of that phrase and go on to the next ones. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 2. And again, Jason, let me know if I miss some of the uh, fill-ins 
on this sheet. I'm teaching from different notes. So let me see. I can. It looks like I have a while to go before I have a blank to fill in. You can look at those and have them for later or add your own notes or scriptures there in the margin. So verse number two continues. The husband of one wife, the next word there is vigilant. That word means sober, circumspect, and vigilant. Not a, that word sober there specifically doesn't have to do with drunkenness, though you're certainly not being sober if you're drunk all the time, because it's talking about being serious, being circumspect, being vigilant, being a serious person, not a careless person, for that would not be well for someone to be who is leading in the house of God. Um, well, I said vigilant and then sober. One of the definitions of vigilant is sober, circumspect, vigilant. And then the word sober, which means sound in mind, self-controlled, moderate, and temperate. So the, the idea there is that, as I said, you would be a serious person, not someone who's drunk all the time or someone who's careless and just living life like a party and not taking care of details and looking out for the flock of God. We'll see a text at, at some point that says where Paul said to look out for the wolves that would come in and target the sheep. And that takes someone who's being vigilant. That's what Jesus, that's what Peter told the church when he wrote in First Peter, be sober be vigilant. The exact same words. Why? For your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. So that's every single one of us as Christians, but no doubt, perhaps, maybe even on another level, the spiritual attack against the leaders of the house of God, the attacks will come because the devil can do more damage, perhaps, to the name of Christ and the testimony of the church if the leaders fall into sin. And again, that's why it says don't receive an accusation against an elder unless it's two or three witnesses, but them that do sin rebuke before all. People say, well, if it comes out that a leader in the church did this sin, that's going to be bad for the church. Not really. I, I think what, I mean, yes, it is, but perhaps worse is that that type of thing was swept under the rug and someone was allowed to continue further into sin and that it was not taken seriously enough to be rebuked. And yes, it's bad, but when someone is rebuked, there's also young people who are watching. There's also people who learn from the fall of another. So be sober, be vigilant. The devil is after each and every one of us. The next word there is of good behavior. That's easy enough to understand. It means behaving well. Um, that word there also has the definition of modest, which I think there's another word here that has something to do with that thought of uh, modest. Um, sober means sound in mind, self-controlled, moderate, and temperate. So to be modest means that you're not living this extravagant, careless, look at me type of lifestyle, but that, it, not that you have to take a vow of poverty, but that your priorities are straight. You're not looking to spend all of your money on gold chains. Uh, that's what Des Bryant did when he got signed as a rookie. He ran out of money because he gave all of his money to people around him and to buy gold chains. That's not a modest of good behavior, serious type of lifestyle that God says the leader in the church should exemplify so that no doubt others can live from it. The next one is given to hospitality which again is easy enough to understand. It's given to the habit of being hospitable to others and welcoming them 
Um, the Greek word, one of the definitions under that said fond of guests. Fond of having guests, welcoming people, being hospitable, loving, and fellowshipping them. We've talked about how through the book of Acts and the rest of the... It, it, it ex- Boy, my brain gets going faster than the words just don't keep up with it. Or else my brain is too slow. One of the others. It says that in the first century church, they were continuing in prayer and in the teaching from the apostles, but also in breaking of bread, in fellowship, in being in one another's homes, and living life together as a family. So here again, the leader setting that example by being given to hospitality. The next one there is apt to teach. The word apt here, I think I have that in your notes. The word apt means suitable having a tendency, inclined, ready, or qualified to teach. Another place I saw said able to teach. So it carries both the connotation of you're qualified to do it, you're actually up to the task and able to teach others, but also that you have a tendency, you're inclined, you're ready, you want to be involved in people's lives, you want to teach them, And scripturally, the role of the pastor is to teach what? The Word of God. It's to teach the Bible to others. At its basic, most elemental level, I believe that's what a call to be a pastor is, though it carries out a lot of other duties. It's teaching the Bible to other people through the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God. And hopefully, for me, that's one basic way you could put a goal of my preaching is that if you're here listening to it, is that you learn Bible from it. No doubt a lot of this you've already known, you've already heard. There's people here who have been in church their whole lives, been Bible students their whole lives, but through the preaching of the Word of God, the goal for me is not just that it would be telling a bunch of stories or that it would be funny, but that we would be learning what the Bible says through the teaching and the preaching. Okay, whole new verse. Verse number three. Not given... To wine. So verse 2, this may be where we finish tonight. There's so much packed in these little phrases. But I love this teaching week-to-week format because rather than rushing to get through an outline, if you're patient enough to not get tired of one particular study, it allows me to just plow forward, hopefully not get too bogged down or repetitive, but go all the way in teaching what the Lord gives me through these verses. We said the verse before that that says sober didn't necessarily carry the connotation of not being drunk, though certainly a drunkard is not a sober, serious, circumspect, vigilant person. But here, the Bible specifically gives in verse 3, the qualification of a pastor is that he would be not given to wine. One of the definitions says it has to do with staying near wine. So on a continual, ongoing basis being given over to alcoholic beverage. Now, this is another thing that is incredibly controversial everywhere you go. I am of the belief that especially the alcohol content that is available today, that as Christians, the Bible tells us not to partake of any of it, that look not on the wine when it is red, when it turneth itself, when it giveth its color in the cup, I think in Proverbs that's talking about the hard liquor. The Bible is full of warnings against it. Um, There's other verses that people would look at that would point to and say, this indicates you can partake of it moderately. And so long as you don't get drunk, it's okay. That's really not what I think about it, but I do show compassion to people who believe that, 
because you can certainly look at a lot of the Bible that seems to be saying that. So if someone takes that position that, well, so long as you take so little of it that you could never get drunk, I think it's okay. I really do not agree with that for a host of reasons that I don't want to teach on all of it tonight. Part of it because I don't think I'm as studied or as well qualified as others as I've heard yet. Um, to teach super in-depth in that topic. I'm just saying I show people some grace to have a disagreement because you look at the text itself and you could certainly argue from some verses that you think that that's what it is saying. I just think that the, the alcohol they had in the Bible time was so diluted that you could drink a lot of it and not really get drunk. And uh, they point out the story of the wedding feast where Jesus turned the water into wine that they literally ran out. There was not a 7-Eleven at the corner that you could go keep hammering alcohol, which is what is happening in our society. It really is hurting a lot more people than most people would like to admit. And I have a sort of a personal thing against it. I don't know, maybe for some reasons I could think about and share at a later time where I just, I kind of hate it. I kind of hate the whole industry. I hate the whole idea of it. And the thought of my child turning 21 and saying, well, here's a cup of hard liquor. Just make sure you only take a little bit and not knowing what their propensity would be to be given over to that. To me, I am completely withdrawn. I could be made fun of by a lot, I'm sure, but I would be in that total abstinence, teetotaler position, at least for me in my house. That's what I have decided. But this verse does have to do with drunkenness being given to wine on a continual basis. There's a pastor who was a famous pastor named Mark Driscoll. He had a church in Seattle that had thousands and thousands of people and all kinds of satellite churches. And eventually it was plagiarism and some financial things that went wrong. He had to step back and it was like basically that whole network just like crumbled overnight and the church is closed and shut down and there's not even anything to do with it anymore. But 10 or 15 years ago, he was very famous kind of on the scene Calvinist type of pastor that they would call the emerging church that would say, well, we hold to the doctrines true, but we're in a different cultural context and we're going to look different than people have always looked, that type of thing. At any rate, he was taking the position that drinking any kind of hard alcohol is okay so long as you're moderate. And he wrote about it in one of his books. And he said that, well, I kind of came, I became convicted about the fact that I never drank and looked at it as wrong. And he says in his book that he became convicted of his, quote, sin of abstinence from alcohol. He, he then says, so in repentance, I drank a hard cider over lunch with our worship pastor. Um, so I, I, in the Old Testament, if Aaron or his sons had any wine at all in any quantity before they went in to offer the sacrifice, does anyone know if they had it before they went into the holy place, what God said he would do to them? God said he would strike them dead because it was a holy and it was a precious thing. And God said, don't partake of any of it. Um, in Proverbs, it says it's not given to kings, O Lemuel, to drink wine. So both of those teachings have to do with such a serious position that if you were partaking in alcohol, it at minimum opened the door to danger because alcohol, when consumed to the point of drunkenness, takes away our ability to make our own decisions. Here it says it's not for pastors to be given to wine. If you were, that would be disqualifying. There was a man named Darren Patrick who wrote a book called The Church Planter, and he did a large survey of 
church planners and pastors, and specifically of the demographic group of younger pastors. And he said in the surveys they filled out, he, he said, quote, the biggest problem among these young pastors is drunkenness. People, young men who were hearing the, the teaching and agreeing, well, so long as you have it in moderation, and secretly in their life it was not in moderation, and something that the Bible says was disqualifying in this one particular survey, he found it as the greatest problem that they had was being given to alcohol and drinking to the point of intoxication. I'm, I'm wrapping up my time here, but if anyone would like to listen to more, I thought John MacArthur had two excellent sermons on the topic. The one was called Christians and Alcohol, and part two was called Interrogating Alcohol. Uh, I've I said before, I find myself quoting him uh, a little bit more. He certainly teaches things that I would not agree with, but when I do listen, I really respect his approach to the text, and I think he always has the goal of getting to what the Bible says and teaching it to other people. And those two sermons particularly I found to be very helpful where he went into the history of what it was like, what was happening at the time, and I just thought was a very good scriptural message that, as I said, I'm sure I'll speak on it someday, but something that requires a lot of study that if you want to listen to more, I thought those two sermons were fantastic. So I'll give you his one quote, and then we're just about ready to be done here and wrap up. He quoted that study where it said the biggest problem was drunkenness. And then he says, have you ever heard in your life, in the history of the church, that a big problem among pastors was drunkenness? He goes on to say, this new freedom, this new liberation is damaging. Pastors should not be doing that and they should not be advocating that. What they're telling those kids to drink isn't anything like what was going on in the scriptures. They might as well tell them to have slaves. He was referring there to the fact that in the Bible it may refer to slavery, which was more of an indentured servitude cultural thing, and saying, well, I found the word slave in the Bible so I can own a slave today, which, by the way, people did in times past in America and around the world. And he says if you're going to look and see where people drank in the Bible, and says, sure, go ahead and drink like people do today, it's the alcohol today, he's saying, is so is as different today as slavery was in Bible times to what we would look at and might think of as slavery. At any rate, basically he's saying that came from the fact that you're teaching, yeah, it's okay, even like the one pastor from Seattle glorified, I repented of not drinking sooner, just drink in moderation, and they took that and, well, oh, this is a newfound freedom, and then it led them into drinking more and more to get away from the stress to where it became that they fell into something that the Bible says makes you not even qualified to be a leader in the church. And he said at their church, it's always been a qualification to be on the pastoral team that you cannot drink hard alcohol in any form at all, which I think is certainly biblical. I thought I might have had one more thing to say there, but it's escaping from my mind. I think even the Southern Baptists, as much as they're split between the new and the old guard, there's conservatives and then there's more liberals. Like I said, the, the current president had the woman come teach Sunday morning in his church as, as the position of a pastor is supposed to do. But I believe the last I heard it's still in their agreement that you can't drink alcohol and be 
in good standing with the convention. I'm not 100% sure on that point, but I do remember reading that in the past, at least in one group or section, there was someone who was saying, well, I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but I chose to give it up because this Southern Baptist Convention uh, whatever it was, group, sector, in order to be involved with it, I had to not do it. I certainly think that's wise, and I certainly think that's biblical, so much so that if you were to be able at all to be accused of giving to wine, the Bible says it's disqualifying. I'll stop there for tonight. We, again, didn't make it very far, but I hope it's not getting too bogged down. I hope the information is good and is interesting. Does anyone have anything else? To, uh, I'll go ahead and open it up uh, one more time. Any questions or comments? or prayer requests that we didn't get to. And it doesn't look like we do, so we'll go ahead and be dismissed in a word of prayer. And Brother Jason will have the offering plate right there in the back. If anyone had a donation, you can drop it in after we pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. I pray that the Word of God would be edifying to us tonight. I pray that you would help my feeble attempts to simply exposit and look to the Bible and see what it says. I have no doubt that if I get to be privileged enough to continue in the ministry, that someday I'll look back at some of the things I said and say, well, I didn't get it all 100% right because no one does but you. So I pray that we always would be growing in grace and that, Lord, if I do miss the mark on anything, that you would show me compassion and show me where I'm wrong and the Word of God is right. I pray you'd bless these people for coming out here tonight and the love and support that they've showed to me and to our church through this time of transition. We pray that you would continue to bless our church. And as we go forward, Heavenly Father, that you would allow us to see souls saved, people added to the church, and your will be done, not for our honor and glory, but for yours. Be with Sarissa, who has the cold at home tonight. We pray that you'd be with Israel and you'd stop the violence there and give peace where you said your chosen people live. We pray for Ethan's family, where he recently had a cousin pass away, that you'd give them great comfort. Uh, during this difficult time. We also pray for his health and for his recovery. We pray for our brother, John Spivey, who's here tonight, that, Lord, you would be with his health, that you would give him healing, miraculous healing. But, Lord, if you choose not to do that ever or for a time, that you would allow him to be able to find the right things that would help mitigate the pain and the difficulties through that. So I just thank you for him being with us here tonight. Uh, I pray that you would be with our church as we go forward and with my dad as he will be coming back Sunday, that you would bless as we go off into the future, that we would see mighty things done and miraculous answers to prayer. We ask these things in Jesus' name. 